Aren't you supposed to be watching for the dredge? Yes, please, ma'am. That's right. Dredge bad, we good. Now go look at something shiny for a while. How's this? Thank you, Shadow, again! It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest. I'm Gareth Green and joining me today is my co-host, Andrew Raphael. Ooh, is it me? <laughs> okay, so today we're actually going to be doing something a little differently. We did speak about it on the end of our Soldier episode, but we're actually going to be releasing a few of our lost Best Forgotten Movie episodes, and that's going to begin today with Titan AE. And why was this film forgotten? What actually happened with uh, this episode? What happened? This was recorded, I think, in late November 2016. And this was the last episode we recorded for our original run. So it followed Last Action Hero. And for whatever reason, life got in the way and we never ended up finishing the editing. I think I literally got about five minutes into it. And then life happened, Christmas happened, and we never mm -hmm. picked it up. But we were actually winding down at this stage anyway. I think the original plan yeah. was to have done this episode and Willow and then have a break. But unfortunately, that break occurred far sooner than we originally thought so um this has just been sitting on our hard drives for a long time <laughs> and i've only just got round to uh giving it a polish <laughs> that's right that's right and there are a few more episodes that will be released throughout this current run of popcorn digest i do know that there are at least two more episodes of best forgotten movies that we do need to release so you'll see them sporadically uh, placed within our schedule and we'll certainly tell you when we are coming up to them but for now this is our titan AE episode and we hope you enjoy but first we need to get up to 88 miles per hour so we can go back in time <laughs> it's the best forgotten Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films at time abandoned in space. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time songwriter for Lit, Andrew Phillips. I'm gonna sing a generic song. And it'll be your number one hit. Yeah. <laughs> Every teen rock band has this sound and these chord changes in the 90s yeah and in this episode we're taken back to the skies and scouring space in search of a good film and instead we found titan ae but is this don bluth bomb deserving of its poisonous reputation find out after the trailer i was born in 3023 Humans had already conquered space. Even though it was easy to travel to the farthest galaxy, we'd always thought Earth would be home. But we were wrong. And we had to leave. Fifteen years after Earth, humanity's last hope is Titan A.E. 
Matt Damon is severely punchable as Kale Tucker, a space drifter who's insufferable as the juice diet he's named after. Gary Goldman and Don Bluth's Titan AE begins with the destruction of an entire planet and ends with the destruction of an entire animation studio. With the human race teetering on the brink of extinction in a vast uncaring universe, their fate falls into the hands of Kale Tucker. Literally, the key to humanity is in his hand. He and an assorted band of space drifters race against time to locate his father's space station whilst on the threat of the planet-killing dredge. Adventure, excitement and pop-punk ensues. Done it. Got there in the end. Yeah. Jesus, that was hard. Not pop-cum, as Not we po- said yeah. in the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, why have we chosen Titan AE for discussion on Best Forgotten Movies? Why have we nominated this film? I think it was actually suggested to us by one of our listeners. Again, a second suggestion from Stuart Crichton. I mean, I think it was on our list anyway. It was. Actually, it was firmly I mean, on our list. This is a film I've been aware of. Well, I remember it coming out, and I have had it on DVD since it came out. I've actually got the original release mm-hmm. of the DVD. It seems tailor-made for our, our podcast, actually. It does, and it's a film that we both have some prior experience with before this podcast. We've watched it together a couple of times, I think, yeah, as we well. Have, yeah. And yeah, it's always been a contender. It's always been up there as a film that we've wanted to cover. And it's just a matter of finding the right space. And so here we are. So when did you first see Titan AE? I don't think I ever went to see it at the cinema. I think it was when it came out on DVD and I picked it up then and then watched it. Yeah. It must have been early 2001 or something. Yeah. I imagine it came out for Christmas. I think I actually contributed to this film's downfall because <laughs> when it was released at the cinema and it was bombing pretty hard, I mean, we will get into the stacks and fats later, I really wanted to see this film, but instead bought it at a market on VHS. <laughs> um, I bought a pirated copy of it on VHS Ooh. and uh, watched it at home. And literally, it was one of those pirated copies where I could see people standing up oh, yeah, yeah. to go to the toilet. Like, that was old school pirated copies. Yeah, you know? yeah. None of the screen of shit that you get now. Well, I think everyone had that pirated copy of Star Wars Episode One. Yes. Those two films, for me, are very closely linked because I'm very sorry to say that I probably watched Star Wars Episode One about nine times at the cinema. Mm-hmm. And the only reason was is that my local cinema, when I was living in Devon, it was probably only about £3 to get in and watch the film because no one else was because it was like a very small local cinema. They actually installed... Dolby surround sound just to show this film. So I did go and see it an awful lot of times, but I remember the adverts reel beforehand was yeah. so long. I think it was the longest advert reel that I'd ever seen in front of a film. I mean, now it's quite normal to have yeah, a half hour ad reel, but at the time it was like forever. And there were so many things because obviously so many films and advertising agencies and stuff wanted to have their advert in front of yeah. Star Wars Episode 1. And because this is also a Fox film, there was a teaser trailer for Titan AE in front of Star Wars Episode One, And I just always remember it because it's a fucking weird teaser trailer. It doesn't really give you any indication of what kind of film it is or whether it's even animation. Yeah. Like, it's a shot of a Titan blasting off out from Earth and going into space with a Matt Damon narration. And then it says, like, Titan AE, Summer 2000 or something like that. And I that was it. remember that trailer. Yeah. I remember seeing that trailer before The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And it says something like 15 years after Earth. And it's just one of those trailers where you just go like, what the fuck was that about? Yeah. Like, it was yeah. a really poor teaser trailer. <laughs> but it's because... Obviously, Fox, it was a Fox property and everything. They had dibs on what trailers they could have in front mm-hmm. of this film. And yeah, that was just one of them. And I don't think it really helped because I think even from then, you could feel that they didn't really know what to do with this film. Yeah. I 
did actually enjoy this film when I first saw it. Uh, quite a lot, actually, when it first came out. But I was of the age in which this film... Like, this film is made for a very small demographic. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's targeted at a yes. very niche audience. And mm-hmm. I was part of that audience. Um, I actually bought the, um, the Lit album based off the back Ooh. of uh, I'm In Over My Head. Which is probably their only hit song, I yeah. think, actually. And uh, the album is similarly um, awful. <laughs> I think they're in the cruise ships and the clubs and pubs now. <laughs> the clubs and pubs. The clubs yeah. and bars. I'm sure we would see them in like the the local British Legion. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be hilarious. <laughs> in front of all these all like OAPs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's my experience with Titan A. It's yeah. actually a positive one. I have a fond memories of watching this film on VHS. As yeah, I, I think my memories of it are more sort of, I wouldn't say fond, not that I didn't like it, I just found the whole thing so weird. Yeah. I think also because it was the very first sci-fi animated film I'd ever seen as well, I just found the whole setup of it very strange. Mm-hmm. I remember enjoying it, but I remember something never quite sat right with me. Yeah. Because I really, I, I mean, at the time especially, I was a massive animation nut. I mean, I my ambition at the time was to be an animator. It was like my Yeah, thing. yeah. And, it, and this was at the time when Disney... As long as I've known you, you've been an animation nut. And I think this was at the time when, yeah, Disney really exploded. Not like that. Uh, <laughs> the whole Disney thing was massive, although we didn't know at the time that it was actually winding mm-hmm. down. Because of the success of films like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and especially The Lion King, other studios, and this always happens with anything that ha- is a big hit, other studios want to get in on the game. Mm-hmm. So you had all this stuff in the late 90s where you had DreamWorks animation starting up, you had Warner Brothers animation starting up, and you get films like Quest for Camelot, but you also get films like Iron Giant. Yeah. And Fox was another one of these ones that set up a studio in the late 90s to compete with what they thought would be a long-term strategy, a long-term yeah. thing. I think it was like 94. Or something like that, and yes, Fox Animation Studios was set up for Don Bluth. Yeah, and maybe this would be a good time just to talk about Don Bluth. Yeah, I think so. I think now's the best time for us to really um, seek into dredging up the past on Titan A. Because I think that's a pun on words. I think you missed it. Let me say it again: dredging up the past. Anyway, yeah. But just going back to my original statement when I was starting this paragraph, I suppose the things about this film it doesn't really. feel like a Don Bluth film and there's many things that explain why well I think at times within the same frame yeah it looks like 50% a Don Bluth film and 50% a film from some other studio entirely yeah yeah it's a very strange hybrid but um to Don Bluth himself he's probably someone that people who are into animation are probably aware of but maybe people who aren't so much and not but they may know his films mm-hmm. Don Bluth was an animator who worked for Disney for many years. Yes. All throughout the 50s and the 60s and most of the 70s. So I think he worked on stuff like Sleeping Beauty. I think this is one of his first ones. And um, yeah, did all the stuff like Jungle Book as an assistant and everything. Yeah. And then became like a full-blown animator, I think around the time when they started doing the, the Winnie the Pooh shorts. Mm-hmm. And you can see his name on the credits of stuff like Aristocats and Robin Hood and the Rescuers yeah. and stuff like that. And he's like part of the new blood of the studio because... At the time, Disney, it was very much operated by a group called the Nine Old Men, which had been put in place by Walt Disney. Yes. And were a very close-knit group of animators and directors and storymen. They were basically in charge all throughout the sort of the 50s, 60s, and the 70s. But they were getting to sort of retirement age in the 70s, and they needed new blood. And Don Bluth is one of these people. 
but um, he was getting more and more frustrated at the lack of faith that the Disney studio had in animation itself and also the fact that they were saying they were cutting back on the art of it because they thought it would be too expensive and Don Bluth was going, no, no, we can do it this way and make it good and it wouldn't cost you any more money, but they were like very much resisting him. It got to a point where they knew that they'd have to leave. He'd sort of like banded together a very close-knit group of about 17 artists who were very, very loyal to him. Yeah. And what they'd done in the preceding six or seven years, during their evenings, they'd actually been working on their own film Mm -hmm. in their garages. Yes. Because they said at the time the culture was, because of this nine old men structure, you basically got films at Disney that were directed by the same people Mm-hmm. Like every single film, if you look at like those sort of 60s and 70s Disney films, you'll notice that the directors are pretty much always the same people. Yeah. None of the new people were given the opportunity to direct or were even being trained as directors and filmmakers. They were being trained to draw and be the undermen, but there was no one being pushed to be that person at the top that could take over, um, which was ultimately what led to the problems that Disney had in the 80s. Yeah. And the other thing that contributed to this was the fact that Don Bluth and his team left in... 1979 they went up to the office said we're going to make our own studio to compete with you and then all buggered off and then they took literally half the animation staff because most of these guys were animators so and this started out quite a lot of bad blood between disney and don blue and it also ultimately led to the film that they were working on at the time which was the fox and the hound it actually got delayed by about a year i think because the fact that they lost so much infrastructure Mm -hmm. they released this film that they've been working on it's called uh, banjo and the woodpile cat Mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it's pretty good it's definitely like a nice blueprint to what a traditional John Booth film was going to be Yeah, they set up their own studio and they started working on a film called Secret of Nim I don't think it was a massive hit but it was very very well received critically and by a very sort of core fan base I've actually read a book that seemed to um, sum up the whole Don Bluth Disney conflict um, I actually think it's about video games because I know talking about Don Bluth in a moment we're probably going to talk about uh, what's it called Dragon Quest Dragon, Dragon's Lair Dragon's Lair sorry Dragon Quest is a game that's out yeah Dragon's Lair I read this book I think it's called A Brief History of Video Games maybe it had something about Atari and Xbox and it's title but um they actually sum up this entire conflict and one of the things that they mentioned about the secret of nim was didn't disney move about one of their properties so it would be in direct competition with secret of nim i don't think it was directly in competition at the time but there was a thing where basil great master Tech, ah, didn't right. do as well as american tale but the the film that they scheduled opposite was oliver and company yeah and the land before time okay got you but I knew that there was some kind of yeah, sly like, moving about of schedules so that they yeah, would be in competition. Yeah, a lot of hostility so. as well. Like yeah. I just, uh, I was just been watching a like an interview with Don Bluth that was done at some convention about five or six years ago, and he was basically saying that to Disney animators or anybody working with a Disney company, if they were seen or known to be aiding uh, yes. the Don Bluth company, yeah. they would get fired on the spot. That's how much animosity there was. They ended up making these video games. Yeah. After the Secret of Nim, the Dragon's Lair series, and um, that proved to be like a massive hit. Yeah, it was in the giant. Arcades. Yeah. And I've actually just remembered the name of that book that I um, read, and it's actually called Generation Xbox How Video Games Invaded Hollywood. So if you want to read any further as well about Dragon's Lair, uh, this is a great book to read because there's an entire chapter dedicated to this whole <laughs> feud. <laughs> they made some money off the video games. And then they established a new studio in Ireland with a guy called Morris Sullivan and ended up being called Sullivan Blue Studios. Mm-hmm. And then instead of 1985, they 
made a deal with Amblin and Steven Spielberg to distribute their films. Yes. And they would be Steven Spielberg presented films. And the first one they made was American Tale. Mm-hmm. They have a massive hit with that. They team up again to do another film, uh, this time with George Lucas as well. And he said this is where things really started getting problematic because there were so many people pulling it in different directions. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of footage as well that got pulled, which is why the film The Land Before Time is so short. It yes. should actually be 10 minutes longer than it actually is. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know so that. It's a very short film. It's like 69 minutes it is, long yeah. because it was a bit too dark. Not that the Land Before Time isn't dark already. Well, that makes you wonder, like, Jesus, how dark did yeah. it get? And this was a film that they put directly in competition with Oliver and Company. And although Land Before Time has become something, again, of a cult hit and is more fondly remembered than Oliver and Company, and it probably is definitely a better film, it actually was the one that lost out on the box office yeah. uh, at the time. And this is where the deal with Amblin sort of fell through and they ended up making a lot of films for a company called Goldcrest initially, and then did films like All Dogs Go to Heaven, oh, which is, God, you said yeah. is Nightmare Juice. It's Nightmare Juice, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it is, it's Nightmare Fuel, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then the quality of the films really started to sort of dwindle by this time. I think just real lack of focus, like you get strange films like Rock-A-Doodle and A Troll in Central Park, mm-hmm. uh, Thumbelina, and uh, yeah. Pebble and the Penguin. Which are all the types of films that, when I was a kid, I wouldn't find them on the cinema screen. I'd find them on like the shelf of news agents around the corner. Yeah, you know? they, they're your proper blockbuster fodder, aren't they? Yeah, they really are, yeah. Do you find them in some bargain bin somewhere? Yeah. The thing is that it got run into the ground so much. They almost had like too many films on their plate, but it got run into the ground so much in Ireland that um, if you notice on Pebble and the Penguin, Don Bluth's name's not even on it. There's no, no credited director on that film. I think it was maybe even finished after they even left. Because mm-hmm. around that time when it was released, which was 95, they were cherry-picked by Bill Mechanic, who was the then head of Fox Studios, to set up this new animation studio, which sort of brings us full circle now. Yeah, uh, And yeah, and they were basically coaxed and um, tempted into making this new studio in Phoenix, Arizona, which incidentally is where Don Bluth comes from. So it was a real sort of... like Returning home. It was a bit of a no-brainer, really, yeah. for them. And uh, everything was sort of supplied for them. Yeah, we're building this new studio, got all this new staff. You can bring all over your favorite staff from Ireland. Mm-hmm. If you notice, to a lot of the people in the uh, Titan AE documentary have Irish accents. Yep, they certainly um, do. <laughs> and um, yeah, we're going to make this film that's really going to sort of give Disney a run for the money. And that film ended up being Anastasia, which, uh, yeah, it did end up giving Disney a run for the money. It did pretty well. And it is definitely the closest that Don Bluth came to being more of a, say, copycat of Disney, especially the 90s Disney formula, it was very much a calculated yeah. thing. The main thing with Don Bluth is that he doesn't sometimes know how to pick his stories because he picks a story that's so ridiculously dark and tragic and then tries to make a, a happy fairy tale out of that's kind of, you can't really change that much because obviously a lot of fairy tales are dark, but it's too rooted in, in the modern era to really gloss over Well, my issue that I, I always have with Don Bluth and Don Bluth films, and Titan A is probably one of his um, few productions that actually escapes this, but is the uh, tonal inconsistency when he tries to balance dark with light, uh, because he has a tendency to go too dark. And, I mean, I'm someone that likes a little bit of edge to their animation. I, I like to see somebody doing something different mm. than, like, what Disney are putting out there, like, saying, okay, well... We're not Disney, we're doing our own thing, so let's explore this darkness. But he often goes like 
the other extreme with the light as well. So yeah, you end up yeah. with, I, I guess I would describe it as an emotional whiplashing effect with films like All Dogs Go to Heaven, which are like real, like I said, nightmare fuel for me because it, <laughs> when it goes dark, I mean, yeah. we actually have a hell dog turn up at some point hovering in the sky. But um, yeah, he has a tendency to pick these very, very strange stories that leave you feeling odd as well. But um, yeah, I, I actually think Titan A escapes those tonal inconsistencies. I'd say out of the Don Blue films I've, I've seen, it's one that feels tonally solid. Uh, well, solid, uh, it feels like tonally consistent throughout. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. I always find this is the main flaw with with Don Blue's films in is just that it generally... And it's funny when you see him speak because you, you know he means well and he really wants to get there, but often he never really does. Even when you go back to Secret of Nim, you get that kind of feeling that the storyline and the narrative pull and everything mm-hmm. isn't, isn't that watertight. It's never really, yeah. It's never built on a strong backbone. I mean, uh, Secret of Nim and other films that are in the upper end of his canon, they succeed despite yeah. things like. Yeah. And uh, I find that odd because yeah, he has a lot of things to say about other animated films, and yet sometimes his own animated films fall very short of his own expectations of what he thinks animation should be doing yeah but yeah um anastasia was a a big hit for the studio they did do a a very strange director video film in between anastasia and tiny bartok bartok the magnificent yeah. which if you buy the anastasia dvd it is on there in full standard definition um <laughs> and 4b3 yes uh, yeah i remember that being released i did actually look at it again the other day and i was like oh wow this looks way more director video than i remembered but <laughs> funnily enough a lot of people regard the bartok the magnificent film to be actually better than Anastasia <laughs> which I kind of maybe disagree with I think yeah it, Anastasia is technically much better and I think the story's okay yeah I remember enjoying Anastasia when I I first watched it and I kind of still like it even though it's got quite a few flaws that you kind of scream I, out of you now I've never seen Anastasia it's um but knowing you, you must come round you watch it on, <laughs> watch it on blu-ray yeah, we'll have a few beers and watch <laughs> Anastasia yeah drink every time you see someone with cross eyes <laughs> Because that's that's a major staple of Don Blues. You get these characters that have these eyes that go, yeah, like definitely. And I get this thing where you get all these characters and they kind of all look like black stereotypes. It's oh, weird. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, you know, I guess the big, called, with the big thick lips. It's fine. Like, I find it very disturbing. I, I guess they're called Ogollies now. Yeah, like, uh, it's, yeah. It's got that look to it. That yeah. kind of minstrel look. Mm. Um, which I is, find it. Yeah, I, I think the more and more I think about it, the more disturbing it is when you watch a Don. Yeah, film. I've never noticed that before, but actually, now that you mentioned it, yeah. I, I can see it, and it's like, yeah, the worst one is, like, is that place to be really drawing inspiration. Yeah, from? the worst ones when you get that alligator in. Oh, oh dogs go to course. heaven as well. Yeah, yeah. He's even got a bone through his nose. It's really bad. Got, yeah, that, that, that is. <laughs> By this time, that kind of thing's sort of more and more toned down, but you still got the cross eyes. But I was, I was thinking, like, how did they actually? I mean, this is probably a diversion for our uh, podcast. But what <laughs> did, how did he actually like tackle the brutal murder of Anastasia's family in that film? Because uh, um, actually knowing about the overthrowing of the Russian monarchy, wasn't it? Yeah, time, yeah, yeah, uh, like. How on earth do they deal with that? They the just do it in a song. Entire family. They just do it in a song. It's a line. Uh, Somehow the Tsar did not survive, but maybe his daughter is still alive. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> it's a song called "There's a Rumor in Saint Petersburg" or something like that. Yeah. Like there's a rumor in Saint Petersburg, and they even have fucking like communist guards going hmm, like that. And yeah. It's just like 
it's too close to the bone yeah. for this kind of thing, like this kind of family-friendly Disney-style musical to really be put against. It's, yeah, it's just yeah. too much. And obviously the fact that, yeah, Rasputin is like having all these magical powers. and Yeah, yeah, so I do bizarre. remember that. Yeah, I remember so seeing that bizarre. in the trailer. Mm. But at the same time, I have fond memories of it. So again, yeah. it's that whole nostalgia thing. But, well, this is where the problems of Titan A come into the fold because for some weird reason, even though Anastasia had been a big hit and everything, they never had anything to follow it up with. No. And this is where Titan A, the story, comes in. Yeah, because really. meanwhile... Fox Studios were actually working on a live-action space adventure yeah. called Titan AE. Mm. And they had already pumped $30 million into the pre-production of the film with an unnamed director, an unspecified director, yeah. and had nothing to show for Nothing. Not even a story or anything. Yeah, not a single thing. And yeah. so that director was not surprisingly fired mm. and Titan AE kind of fell into the lap of yeah. Don Bluth and uh, Gary Goldman. Yeah, well, it looks as if like they sat down in a meeting with Bill Mechanic, again, still the head of the studio, and saying, right, we haven't got anything for you to do. What do we do? Because if we don't have anything, then we're going to have to lay all these people off Yeah, and downsize the studio. But we have this thing that's been in development for a while and it's not doing anything. Do you want to do this as, a, as an animated film? And they were kind of really just put on the spot and the thing is that Don Bluth didn't have any experience or even any kind of love for science fiction, but his partner, Gary Goldman, was like, we have to do this. This is We have to do it because there's nothing else that we can do. I mean, that's the thing as well. When you have a studio like this as well, and it's you're faced with either don't make a film and your company is kind of, like, I guess, doomed, doomed <laughs> or make a film and for however long you get to pay, uh, well, your animators, your crew get paid. Yeah. So it's like yeah. the answer is obvious. You make the film. Yeah. Because you know it means feeding families for yeah. another yeah. <laughs> couple of years. Yeah. I mean, in a way, this is almost the Don Bluth film that shouldn't be. Yeah. Because of the the circumstances surrounding it. Because it almost felt like yeah, after Anastasia and Bartok and then doing very well with that, it kind of it almost like reached a natural end mm-hmm. with that situation. But they almost like kept going. Yeah, with this and this was like a little piece of life support but it only sustained for a very short period of time yeah it was only kind of waylaying the inevitable yeah it really was yeah and you can almost sense that that doom in the in the film itself like mm-hmm. you can feel like something's dying yeah in it it's kind of sad in a way when you th- when you think about it but um but yeah they, they set to work on making an animated version of this film and um I mean, they got a decent budget for it. I mean, it's like a $75 million film. I know. I, I, I want to talk about this for a moment because it, it was a $75 million budgeted film, but mm. I'm often... Does that take into account the $30 million that was already spent? No. On on the film? All right. No. So that's $75 million I think for we, I th- Don I'd imagine some very clever accounting because the original film was a live-action film and this is an animated film. I, can, I bet you the Fox people were able to write the other one off. And, yeah. And... It cost probably more money than it should have because they wanted it done in a quicker time and then you gave them 19 months to make the film. Yeah. And they would have preferred two years production, which mm-hmm. is what most animated films at that time did. I mean, it's different now because CG animated films, actual production times, much, much shorter. You're generally looking at sort of 10 to 12 months actual production. Some films even shorter than that. And the best example of that is Toy Story 2, which had about four months or something stupid like that Mm -hmm. ridiculous but yeah they had a lot less time than they thought they were going to have um and things were budgeted wrongly as well they thought that 40 percent of the film would be computer animated but it ended up being more sort of like i think like 80 
seven percent or something. The film has a CG element in it, yeah, or something like that. So yeah, they they really sort of miscalculated, and they had to bring another studios in to help out like blue sky and other companies but that's also indicative of the fact that as they were going the wheels were starting to fall off the car yeah anyway because in in 1999 which is kind of towards the end of production they laid off about 300 of the staff at the phoenix studio and uh, they were really just running on fumes then Mm -hmm. which indicates why the film looks the way it does because there are parts of it that do feel very sort of unfinished yeah, especially times. when you come to merging the CGI work with the traditionally animated work. Um, like, the CGI work has clearly had frames dropped from it. Yeah, there's know? a strange, like, strobing effect where yeah. they, they did the CG in a one particular frame rate and then the animation in another frame rate and they didn't merge together. And so you get... It's fine when you get all traditional shots or all cg yep, shots works fine but as soon as you get a shot where the elements are blended together and there's any kind of movement of the camera yeah the traditional it still looks fine yeah but the cg starts to look really jerky and yeah you can it starts see the, to judder the and jerk yeah. The judder, yeah and it's a shame because yeah you can tell they, they're really putting the effort in and this was a really the first film that was using cgi with animated characters so liberally yeah, like it was a lot of it. I mean, they did a lot of it later on with Disney, and their sort of adventure slash sci-fi films. But this was a big step in that direction. I mean, I do want to say as well that for all its faults, in terms of the uh, technical approach to the film, in terms of the blending and combining of the CGI and traditionally animated elements. Um, I actually still appreciate what they were trying to achieve with this film because it is a unique looking film it is trying to do something different for the time and it's trying to uh, jump ahead of the curve and predict what the future of animation is going to be because this is a transitional period for animation yeah uh, because we're like pixar is on the rise and traditionally animated films are on the fall yeah for one reason or another and this is a film that tries to do traditional animation in a new way, in a new and unique way. And I, it's like I appreciate them and the ambition of them to try and yeah, do something yeah. different with this new technology. But for one reason or another, it just doesn't come through in the end. You can maybe point the finger towards some of the visuals because, yes, yeah, some of them don't work so well. But I really don't think that that is the root of the problem with the film. No. Where it really falls down is on... Maybe more in the way the story's told rather than what the actual story is. Yeah. Because I was talking to you as well about how some of the characters are, are kind of weird and it, you can't really get handle of them or they're not on screen enough or something like that. But maybe just in the way the characters, some of the characters are introduced as well is a bit, is very odd. Mm-hmm. And again, the film doesn't really have enough time to breathe. And this seems to have gone away now. Like that, a lot of animated films, because they can, the production schedule's better and I think you can do more with CGI films have been able to become longer yeah which gives the film a chance to breathe i mean a lot of pixar films and disney films and more around sort of the 100 minute mark yeah when in the 90s and before that they're around about the 70 to 80 minute mark so mm-hmm. they have to be much more compact but with a film of this nature there's a lot of things which either are just rushed through or they're very slight or yeah there's no actual way of getting from one thing to another so there's a lot of things where i put my notes where oh that was easy yeah they just cheat their way out <laughs> yeah. of it and uh, the prime example of that is kale's escape from yeah. the dredge ship or, or yeah. the dredge cell that he has kept in he yeah. simply uses his fingers to 
I don't know, create a hole yeah. in the wall. There's that pressure to make a 90-minute film. And it's it's a shame because I like a lot of the world that is built in this film. I, I want to spend time in this world. Um, and I wish that the film would um, actually just take a breath and let us enjoy it for a moment. Uh, but instead, it's moving forward at such a breakneck pace that you don't have time to stop and enjoy what you're looking at. I think the other main thing that we really need to address as well, when we'll go into it a bit later, but is the way that they try to market the film to a particular audience, but not even just advertising-wise, but within the film itself. Yeah, it is within the film. Because the main thing we really need to talk about that is a a, a major detriment to the, the impact of the film is its soundtrack. Oh, unbelievably Which so. Is fucking shocking. Yeah, it's it, terrible. Uh, it's awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just not good. Uh, it cheapens the film so much. It does, and it dates it instantly. Yeah. Yeah, because, it does. I mean, as a 13-year-old kid when this film came out, I was into pop punk among many other genres. And uh, like I said, I did buy lit soundtrack based on this. I probably listened to it once or twice and never again. And every time I go back to this film, this soundtrack gets... Like like I say, it's more and more dated by the time. I mean, literally it is. But um, it, it's a film about the future and about space travel and stuff like that. It yeah. should feel timeless. Yeah. And yet it feels so grounded in in that particular era. And that soundtrack just is constantly taking you out of that yeah, world. It's so Every detrimental. Every time a new song comes about. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think as we go on and out, I think we're going to have maybe songs from that soundtrack just coming at really inappropriate <laughs> moments. Uh, and just it's ruin my time. Sorry. Oh, and there's some the, the thing is with the songs they're so on the nose as well with what's going on yeah it's ridiculous it's oh it's awful yeah it's because so they've, they've not even chosen particularly good bands of, of that genre to um to convey the um the, the feels of certain scenes and so i mean like like you say i'm in over my head couldn't beat you harder over the head with its message uh, for that particular scene. It, yeah, oh, it says it so many fucking times as well. It's just, <laughs> we watched the music video of it before and it was hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, there's so many songs like that where it's just, again, a one-word phrase that's the story beat that gets yeah. repeated in the song to this horrible pop-punk thing, which is... I, I've ne- I never got into pop-punk. I could see it for what it was even at that age. <laughs> the thing is, with this film, it's got itself into a position where it's... It's marketed itself to such a small demographic Mm -hmm. and turned off so many people. I don't understand the reasoning behind that soundtrack because it's like, yeah, we want to get all these people. But it's like, no, you're actually narrowing your audience by doing that. Yeah, to a pinpoint. Yeah. So, yeah, this is another one of those things where they just didn't know what the hell they were doing with this film in terms of how to market this kind of film. I wouldn't say that's anyone's particular fault because I think just generally at this time... It feels like the, a business decision as well. Like, yeah, um, it is some, a, some, a real one. Some like 40 to 50-year-old man who's completely removed from re- that generation of people yeah. has just said, oh, we should, like, <laughs> I always think of a fat cat with a cigar in his mouth. But he's just thought, oh, yeah, we, we, we need to make this for kids. We need this for the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as much as I'd like to be cynical about it, I don't think it's anyone's particular fault because I feel like it, around this time not really anybody had any idea how to market and and make a real resurgence in this traditional animation because Mm -hmm. it was all dying at that time. Yeah. And I don't think anyone really knew how to bring it back up, which is really strange. It's kind of weird how, how after the Lion King, everything just fell apart so quickly. 
Yeah. Not just at Disney, but just with all these other studios that were trying to do the same thing. They just, no one could really get anything off the ground. Then again, you get the odd gem like Iron Giant in there, but a lot of the rest of it at that time was just a complete mess. Mm-hmm. CGI was able to get in there, and I don't feel like it was definitely attractive because it was a new thing. And again, maybe they were lucky because they had the good stories and the good characters to to pull through with that, which is why CGI is now the staple. But I don't. I think the main problem with the traditional stuff is that a lot of the a lot of the projects weren't strong enough to carry. Yeah, that seems to be the general consensus now that the, the films maybe weren't strong enough. I mean, there are a couple of films I'm really fond of, but then yeah, again, you can kind of think, no, maybe they wouldn't really fly now when you actually if you brought it out again. Yeah, maybe there are still too many problems with them. So this is just another one of those films that falls into that category, that falls into that pile. Oh, the thing is, I think that there is the potential for Titan AE to work um, had some different decisions been made in yeah. terms of the, um, I wouldn't say the, like the aesthetics of the world as well. And I mean that as well in terms of the music. And, uh, yeah. Because one of the things that the, the music has been chosen for as well, and you actually sent me a text mentioning that on the back of the box that, uh, they described the soundtrack as being an edgy Yeah, on the back of the DVD box. Which uh, <laughs> couldn't be any further from the truth. Yeah, it's the most safe... Sa- well, it's, it's like, in terms of punk music, it's like the safest punk music. Yeah, It's yeah. like, it's anodyne. Or <laughs> yes. But um, I feel like they've not trusted their film and their film story to be edgy in its own way. And, and I mean that in terms of they're trying to chase this feel of a legitimate sci-fi film in an animated setting. Yeah. I guess within an animated film medium. But um, they've not trusted the material enough to push across those kind of more, those more, I wouldn't say mature, but older themes, you know, that, yeah, uh, that, yeah. Uh, to make it, give it a legitimacy. Yeah. And so they've kind of pushed the soundtrack in, their kind of, their idea of what edgy is. Yeah. Just to kind of, brush over all of this yeah there's actually only one sequence where it actually i feel like everything works yeah and it's the sequence where they're hiding in the in the comets in the ice oh yeah and it's the yeah. whole cat and mouse with the whole reflections because there's no shitty soundtrack it's just like actual mm-hmm. soundtrack like you know the grand revel score yeah and it's it's much stiller doesn't it's not trying to move as yeah. fast as it possibly is it's just a proper good old-fashioned cat-and-mouse game in this ice with them giving the bad guys the wrong directions with all these multiple reflections, and that's the best thing in the whole film because it doesn't have to do all this other shit. There's a moment as well previously in the film, the the flight through the um, the space dust or the nebula or whatever it is, and they're kind of like almost like birds yeah. flying around the ship, and it's like it almost works, but for that shit song that they put over it. Yeah. And it's like if you had a really kind of nice score underneath that, like let Graham Revell do his thing. Yeah. Could have really pushed that moment because that is a moment in which the film needs more of where it stops and enjoys the world for, a, for just a second. Yeah, I think the other problem with that sequence is it does feel a bit tacked on. It doesn't feel like it's a strong enough character moment. If it was a real, like, some sort of, like, rites of passage for that character, yeah, yeah. it would mean more, but it doesn't really... It's just there. Yeah. Like, there's a real problem with this main character as well. I think that's the other, the other issue. Yeah, like, I wrote that in my notes a, as well. He's yeah. just... Um, you never really get a handle of him. He's really annoying. He just seems to be moody for no reason whatsoever. Uh, well, obviously, apart from the obvious reasons. The but abandonment. He seems, yeah. But he just seems to be a bit of an arsehole. And he's suddenly able to do stuff, and it's never explained why. Yeah. 
because for all his life he's just been working on salvage and all that kind of stuff but then it's all of a sudden he can fly and yeah do all this stuff and it's kind of yeah it's just very convenient to talk about these characters for a moment as well i actually think that this film has two of the most unlikable main characters they are actively unlikable in terms yeah, of yeah. both kale who like i said is named after an insufferable diet yeah uh, drink <laughs> and um and akima yeah uh, or is it akima or akiba akima akima yeah I, I actually find them actively unlikable they they go out of their way to to be hateable yeah um i i think it's because in part i think it's that josh whedonisms uh, that those <laughs> yeah. kind of uh cocky characters that, yeah. that he didn't really perfect in the sci-fi setting until firefly yeah this is another one of those films that belongs in a very small club along with alien resurrection as a yet another dress rehearsal for firefly yeah yeah absolutely yeah and um, part of the problem I have with this film now approaching it as an adult, although some would argue otherwise about me, <laughs> whether or not I'm an adult, but um, are these two main characters? Because I do not warm to them whatsoever. There's some nice snappy dialogue here and there. There are a couple of moments, but largely they are unlikable. Yeah, I'd probably say definitely more so with Kale. I mean, Akeem is all right, I suppose. Yeah. But Kale is just, yeah, you never really relate to them in any kind of way. No. And they're not particularly interesting. So yeah, in that way, yeah, the alien characters do have a, a, a massive edge over the over the the two lead human characters, really. Yeah. The other character is the the coarser character who could be interesting, but I don't feel he's, he's anywhere near as interesting as he should be. I think he's one of the better characters in the film, though, yeah, just yeah. for having some sort of duality about him with the double cross and all. Yeah, but the, I don't feel like the motivation is strong enough. No, I actually think that the whole double cross itself is somewhat shady in terms of the mechanics of it. Yeah, although I think the other main problem with that is that we don't get a handle on what the dredge is and I, what I their think fears are. I think primarily anything. one of my greatest problems with the film is that the threat, the dredge, I think they describe them in one scene, in one piece of dialogue they describe what their motivations are for destroying us and that is because they're scared of what we might become. And it's like, oh, there's a good idea. Right, just in that yeah, one yeah, line, yeah. it's like let's delve into that. Let's delve yeah, into what, so... what they've seen in humanity that's made them so scared of us. And instead, the film doesn't present at any point in, in the entire runtime. It never presents a reason. Yeah, it never it never presents an example of of what they're so scared from us. They're really just this week's Borg replacement. Yeah, like that kind of ominous mm-hmm. entity thing and it seems that they're concerned with humanity but no other alien race in the film yeah because yeah. no other alien race is even bothered about the dredge whatsoever no. really it's like they're a minor annoyance and it's weird because i quite like the design of them as well i like the idea of this pure energy form it's very star trek yeah but it's yeah. pure energy form that is um that is the threat that is this alien spacecraft and all of the uh little subordinates are born out of this energy this mm. blue energy I, I i like that but Again, why why do we not get to see any of that? Why do we not go any further than that? Yeah, there's many problems with the fact that yeah, they the main characters get trapped on this dread ship, but for some weird reason it doesn't happen at the end of the second act. It's like at the start of the second act. Yeah, and structurally that it's just all in the wrong place, and they get out of the situation far too easily, which diminishes 
the uh, the effectiveness of the dredge as a as an antagonist they no longer really feel like they're undefeatable <laughs> at that point yeah and the dredge themselves as well within those scenes seem very ill-defined because you never get an idea of whether or not the uh, we know that their spacecrafts have pilots and stuff like that but up until that point we believe that the spacecrafts themselves are their own form of energy like sentient energy yeah it's yeah. like what why why aren't they if that's all they're made out of yeah so why it would even have a cockpit for him to escape in? It feels like the only reason that they have pilots in those crafts are because Kyle needs to escape in one of those ships <laughs> yeah, later yeah, on in the film. Definitely. So I, I do not know what the rules are for this race of creature. I don't know what the basic rules are for how they exist. Yeah. Even one of the main interesting things about the dredge is the fact that their pure energy, unfortunately, is set up in a very clumsy way. Like It's a very clumsy setup because it's... It's only mentioned towards the end that they are pure energy, and this is about two minutes before they work out that they can use the dredge, yeah, uh, dredge's energy to repower the Titan, and that's the only reason why it's there. And it almost feels as if like that's the only reason why the line's there. Like there's almost that they don't really care about this dredge mm-hmm. antagonist that much. It's just there because it has to be. Yeah, like you need something that's chasing after them, and there's not really any development on them at all, mm-hmm. apart from these things that need to be in the nuts and bolts of the of the general plot yeah so yeah it's a real shame because they could have been really good and they're just kind of just come off as very undeveloped and very kind of dull yeah in a way even though they look quite cool they do look they look cool they yeah. look cool but again it's all that kind of surface level of very yeah. much like the soundtrack it's like it looks cool for the kids but on, on a surface level um regardless of its faults if only you'd strip away that soundtrack i actually think that there's quite a lot to enjoy about this film in just a visceral sense if you're just yeah, willing yeah. to i mean i hate to use this term i don't like it when other people use this phrase but it's one of those switch your brain off and enjoy it kind of films yeah. and I, I do think there is something to enjoy in this on that level and it is primarily because i like that world and i do think there are some sequences of spectacle that work really well i i love the opening of the film with the yeah, destruction yeah. of earth i think that works i love when the moon is obliterated by pieces of earth that's mm. always been a staple in my mind i always go back to that yeah yeah i'd say as well that is another scene that just it works in itself even though i think the actual spinning when the earth starts spinning faster and starts to crumble that could probably could have used a bit more time to mm. to render yeah i never just feel it comes together no. In any nice way. I said that there are a couple of nice sequences like that ice sequence, but I just feel like in its characters and in its story structure and the way it's put together and everything, I just never feel just as a story and the characters, which at the end of the day are your most important bits, they never really come together to make something that should be, you know, on paper, quite a, a decent sci fi film. And it doesn't quite get there for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I say, I think I fall slightly more positively on the side of the coin when it in regards to this film. But I will also say that, for me, it's more so the uh, the potential that there is in this world that keeps pulling yeah, like me said, back. Yeah, there is lots of potential, but it's I feel like it's trapped in this time space where kids' films had to be a certain kind of thing, a yeah, certain kind of yeah. length. And yet you know that there are other things there because there's things in the film itself that are a bit more adult, a, a bit more edgy, and I'm not talking about the soundtrack, but yeah. there are things there that are wanting to be something else than it, that it can't be. Yeah. And that's the reason why, yeah, the story is a bit flimsy because they can't do these things and it's, it just feels like they're in a straitjacket when it comes to 
this kind of film that's potentially groundbreaking, but they're really trapped in by the rules of what... Yeah, the say, limitations. Yeah, the yeah. limitations of what an animated film is at that time. Yeah, because I'd like to see another go at this film. Yeah I'd, yeah, I'd really like to see another go at this world. And the thing is, though, that will never happen because, number one, the film's poisonous reputation, and number two, it doesn't really have much of a cult following. I mean, it, it does have some people that enjoy it, but I don't think it has enough of a cult following to warrant somebody exploring this world again yeah i still think there are other films that maybe did this kind of thing maybe not entirely successfully but maybe still a little bit better i still think say something like the films that disney did a bit later on like atlantis and and treasure planet i still think they did that thing a little bit better especially in the technical aspects of it as well i think treasure planet is a film that learned from the um faults and flaws of Titan AE and make yeah. sure that they yeah. did not fall into those holes because I, I do think it does the whole blending of CGI and traditional animation a lot better as yeah. well with that film. Oh yeah, those, definitely. Taking those two elements. But at the end of the day, the main problem, I think it all goes back to the the circumstances of making the film that really the directors, it's not a film that the directors wanted to make. No. So there's, there's a real lack of passion in well, the film. And like you say, Don Bluth is somebody that wasn't particularly fond of sci-fi yeah. at all. In that um, lecture that we watched him in, he was speaking about how, why us? Why us yeah. for this property? We don't well, like sci-fi. The statement that he said that summed it up was like, oh, on Titan E, I was just really out of the room on that one. Yeah. It was nothing he really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of a means to an end, and unfortunately it didn't really even pay off. I'd say one place where it is successful for me is... Although its main characters are incredibly um, unlikable, in my opinion, just because they're cocky in the wrong way, in a way that was kind of perfected, like we say, with Serenity, and even now with Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. Um, This film didn't get that right with its character. I'd say that that character is saved somewhat by the casting of Matt Damon because he kind of works for that character at the time. I wish yeah, yeah. the character reflected him a little bit better as well instead, instead of uh, just looking like a stock Don Bluth character. The character of Kale is basically a blonde version of mm. Dimitri, who's the, the male lead in Anastasia, and he's almost exactly the same, apart from a couple of minor details on the colour of his hair. He's exactly the same model. Yeah, uh, And that's a real point of annoyance because it doesn't really separate that film from... Anastasia enough. Yeah, all the other characters are kind of definitely they're very Don Bluth, but they do feel yep. apart from that. Well, that was was what I was going to go on to say was the supporting characters themselves are actually some of the highlights for me. I really like Goon. I really like Screed in terms of the look of these characters as well, and also the voice acting of them. Um, I thought it's Preed. Oh, Preed, sorry, Screed. Um, yeah, Preed. Um, I, I really like the voice acting of these characters as well. We've also got uh, Janine Garofalo as some kangaroo-looking lady. Yeah, Stith. St- hey, that's it, yeah. And um, I really like those supporting characters. I think every time they're on screen, the film comes alive a little bit more. I, I like the banter between them. For me personally, I still feel like it's a little bit too um, restrained. Mm. I remember when I first watched the film and I knew that Nathan Lane was doing that character. I kind of, I remember just afterwards feeling a little bit disappointed. It's a bit too mannered. I feel like yeah. it needs it, that character needed a little bit more humor. Yeah, uh, a little bit more of that. And I think we needed to see those characters a little bit more because they're not in the film that much. They're very no, powerful, no. and yet they're kind of technically the most interesting characters. But I still feel like maybe they're not introduced in the best way. Yeah, I like Nathan Lane. I do like his voice in the film. But there was somebody else that I kept thinking of whenever Preed is on screen, and. 
that's because the character reminds me of Basil Fawlty for some yeah, reason. Yeah. Every time I see him, I think of Basil Fawlty, um, especially in the scene in which he is trying to persuade a security guard that Corso is one of his um, slaves. And the way he beats Corso as well during that scene, it reminds me of the relationship between Basil Fawlty and Manuel. Yeah. And ever, ever since then, I cannot look at that character without thinking of Basil Fawlty. And I was actually thinking maybe John Cleese would have been better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would yeah. have liked to have heard that with that character. But as much as I do like the voice cast with these characters, and like I say, with Matt Damon's character, Kale, um, the, the casting of Matt Damon saves that character somewhat from being entirely unlikable. I feel the opposite with Akima because talking about that character before, she is very unlikable, but I actually think part of the reason is Drew Bymore. Yeah. I don't think she's well cast for that role. I know that they got to the core of that character by making her a little bit more hostile and a little bit more colder and, and hard for this world, which is very suitable for the world that they've set up. Rather than before Drew Bymore was on board, they had somebody that was a bit more feminine and stuff, and they got to that core of the character with Drew Bymore. But I actually think her performance is too cold and too distant. Yeah, it's a, and it very, sounds like it's, she's it's a just bit flat. In, yeah, it just yeah. sounds like she's just saying the lines and going through it. They make such a big deal out of her being a chemo and, and having that, that drifter colony called New Bangkok and yeah. stuff. Like, why not cast somebody with an Asian background yeah. as that character? It just makes so much sense to just to do that. Absolutely. It does feel a bit like a voice whitewash. It's, it is. It's, it's, it's white voice. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you needed some sort of aspect yeah. of that particular character's makeup. See, this <laughs> really? is another thing as well, talking about the the potential in this world in, in terms of these um, humanity is a, a race without a home. I would love to see what this does to the ideas of national identity and things because there is no longer a nationality for people. Their land no longer exists. And that's something they could have delved into in yeah. terms of how those are set up. It's like, do, does China have their own spaceship where the chinese refugees live now and stuff like that you know it's like i think that's indicative though the fact that the makers of the film i.e the directors aren't that interested in sci-fi yeah because at the end of the day you're dealing with a film that's set in like after the year 3000 yeah so you would have expected someone who would be really into sci-fi would have gone to town in terms of explaining the difference between yeah. now and then. And asking those questions. And because yeah. you'd have complete, you'd have almost like new races of people, you'd have different land demographics, everything would be completely different. And yet they really, when you think about, when you look at that opening scene, it's not that far removed from what it is now. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's a shame they just set it in some Midwestern countryside in America yeah, rather yeah. than actually exploring any of the future technologies. Yeah, that, it's like they didn't really couldn't be bothered. Yeah, exactly. Instead, we just get a random field, yeah, like army could be. base. And it's like, yeah, is this really set in the year 3000? You could have said this was year 2023 or whatever. Yeah. It could have been the same thing. And considering that Earth has just a few shots in the film, it's, it has such a small role in the film whose fate kind of looms large over the rest of it. It's like you could have really had fun with those moments on Earth. You should have really gone for broke and really made these moments of Earth very memorable so that when it's gone, it's missed. But even in the minor details as well, because when you look at the Earth, like all the land masses are the same. Yeah. Like that wouldn't happen. Like mm-hmm. in the Earth, it, it, something would have changed. Like something would have moved somewhere. Or yeah. Like, the... What about the, you know, the, the ice melts? Yeah, you know? yeah. So I just feel like they just didn't have the passion for it at yeah. the end of the day and i just don't feel like they're really 100 percent comfortable with the material that they're they're dealing with mm-hmm. i do think it's like a noble failure but um but a failure nonetheless mm. 
I don't hate it, but I don't particularly love it either. I, yeah, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say that I love it. I, I certainly liked it a lot when it first came out, and each subsequent watch has brought up more flaws, and it frustrates because now it would be so much easier to get this type of film right. Yeah, especially within a live action setting, I think, but even within a animated setting, it's a film that's a lot easier to get right now. But even so, I still do like it. I'm just very much aware of its flaws, and it has many of them. Mm. And I would say that there's no particular part of this film, whether it's the writing, the music, the look, there's nothing that is without flaw. If, say, something was firing on all cylinders, and say, yeah, everything else let it down, but there's nothing that's really yeah, really championing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Even talking before about I really appreciate the ambitions of them for trying to do something different with animation. I also think that with the styles that they have between traditional animation and CGI, they don't jar too well when they're on screen together and they're working at their best. And even between them, even when it bounces between scenes of pure CGI and scenes of pure traditional animation, it's jarring because of the two competing and conflicting styles. Yeah. Because the CGI is trying to capture something that is a few shades below photorealistic, mm. but is still more realistic than the very stylistic, traditionally animated characters. Mm. So they're constantly in competition with each other. They're constantly yeah. in conflict with one another, especially when they're both on the same screen. Because you have these textures, like I say, that are trying, that are pushing to be as photorealistic as possible against these 2D animated, hand-drawn yeah, character yeah. models. It's like, so even on that level, it doesn't work. Yeah, and going back to another film that came out at a very similar time, uh, The Iron Giant did that so much better. The Iron Giant is a film that we were going to mention at some point during this podcast because the last time we watched titan ae together we watched it with our good friend aiden belazer who has yep. been on this podcast before uh, i've listened to the uh, super mario brothers episode <laughs> um but we did a day where we just watched a load of don bluth animated films we watched a few disney animated and we watched the iron giant as well mm. warner brothers and we watched titan ae and the iron giant pretty much back to back and th- those are films that were released within a year of each other yeah the difference was stark it is staggering the iron giant is a film in which every frame is just achingly gorgeous. Mm. It's a beautiful, well-composed, and not just each frame, but the way that everything blends together and everything moves. It's a gorgeous film, and it's still one of my favourite animated films of all time. I mean, I hate to say that. It's one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah. Um, animated or otherwise, it doesn't make a difference. And to see it next to Titan A, it really brought out the flaws of that film and made them even more apparent. On every level. Yeah. I think it's when you can see what something like that could be. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. You see what it does when it doesn't quite work. And it really sort of emphasizes the flaws. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, The Iron Giant is a film that, yeah, has all these great things, but it genuinely moves you. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is a film that doesn't move anybody. Really. Mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't have that any, it doesn't get your blood pumping, it doesn't break your heart or anything. Like, it doesn't, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of a bit limp in that way. I don't think it really offers anything compelling for any kind of audience. No. Like, not enough. It's strange as well to talk about Don Bluth as well and talk about how he always embraces the darker elements in his story and really goes for broke with them. 
And like I mentioned before, they had a real opportunity to explore what it was about humanity that the Dredge was so afraid of. He really had an opportunity to explore the darkness of humanity, to present the Dredge as being a somewhat sympathetic villain, a villain that maybe had slight reason to do what they did to humanity. Like maybe they saw something in our future, something that we do. And the film could have been about us proving that we need to have the chance. There's enough good in humanity to have the chance to to live and do different, yeah. you know, to be different. That's like, I feel like there's, there's a lot of potential, especially when you think about the character of Corsair, because if you develop that character a lot more, you, this is a guy that's was once a friend of the guy who was meant to be tasked with saving humanity, but he's become so disillusioned that he's almost lost his humanity and is willing just to sell out. Yeah. Just for a bit of cash, really. And just, just to exist. Just to exist, yeah. And, and that's a really potentially interesting And in the end, character. he gives his life. Yeah, but at the end of the day, the way it's told is really quite dull. Yeah. And very, yeah. Um, I don't know, it's very slapdash in the way it's put together, I think, in that way. I just well, feel like, oh, yeah, he's a double cross. And it's just put together, kind of, mm. it's kind of cheesy, actually. I like that character. I, li- I like what he represents. I like him for having some duality and for actually being interesting. Um, in some way but again i think he's another fatality to the breakneck pace in which this film moves at because it never stops to explore that character any further beyond skin level all of it is surface yeah and there's parts of the character that are very 2d and then it only emphasizes when he does change because you get those lines where it's like he goes your father was a great man all that kind of stuff and it's like there was no time when he was really like you could you were like is he really meaning that or is he in conflict with that or anything yeah, like that yeah, and yeah. it's just you know, it's just a sudden switch and it's very kind of dull yeah yeah and that and it's just like oh and it, it does get very <laughs> towards the end it gets very uh, we're not so different you and i yeah All those kind yeah, of yeah. um dialogue bits come out as well although i did like when it gets shot and um there's the floating blood yes that's nice it's like because all those elements as well, like seeing our characters legitimately vulnerable in a way in which they bleed on yeah. screen, and having characters have their neck snapped, but <laughs> yeah, and and things like that, like they appeal to me in terms of tone as an adult, in terms of that edginess that they're going for, yet with that pop punk soundtrack, which is supposed to complement the edginess mm. of the film, actually drags it back down the other way. Yeah, it actually, drags it back down to it, the teeny it, boppers. It makes it very juvenile. Yeah. It's even in conflict with itself in terms mm. of that. I guess tonally it isn't as consistent as I thought it was. Yeah. Just in terms of, of that whole realm of things. Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely a, a film in conflict. And yeah. It, you can see the problems that they had behind the scenes on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a epitome of a troubled production, really. It is, yeah. Okay, so I think we've said all that we can on Titan AE. So it's time for that part of the podcast where we move to the stats and facts. Here we look at the box office and critical response to the film to see if they hold any clues as to why this film has been forgotten. And first up, we have the critics. Ah uh, yes, the critics. <laughs> so on Yieldy Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> the critics have awarded the film a 51% mm-hmm. rotten rating, average rating 5.7 out of 10, and the critics' consensus is great visuals, but the story feels like a cut and paste job of other sci-fi movies, which I'd have to agree with. It is it is a bit of a, um, a cut and paste of other sci-fi tropes. It is, and it doesn't delve into the ideas that it has enough yeah. to really provide yeah. it its own identity. Yeah, and um, audience score, 6% of people liked it with an average rating of 3.2 out of 5, and that's based on 69,000 
ratings. Again, that does sort of indicate that not that many people have seen this film. Yeah. Especially when you... I, I used to think that was a lot, but when you actually look at some of the ones, it's, it's not. No, no. Um, not even from the forgotten films that we've covered on this podcast. Yeah. So Empire gave it three out of five, and this is a review by William Thomas. And he says, Tonally, about three or four years above a Disney, we get death, even bleeding, and a less than clean cut teen stroppiness in Kale's moany attitude. <laughs> hey, there's even a butt shop, which I was just I mentioning think, before. I think that's why I don't like him. It's because he's just a fucking moany teenager. Yeah. Um, he doesn't look like a teenager. He doesn't, no. <laughs> no, he's a moany 30 year old teenager. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few butt shots in this film as well, like from both main characters. Ass to ass. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I went all Requiem for a dream then. <laughs> Irritatingly, we also get simplistic messages about finding your true path and multicultural harmony. All credit, though, for attempting to drum up something fresh outside Disney's stranglehold. One lesson, though, that the Mouse Kingdom has got sussed is that the words are just as important as the pictures. And I, I kind of have to agree. Yep, I definitely do agree. Even though Disney were also at the time going down that rabbit hole as well. Yeah. So, Although Roger Ebert gave it a much more favorable review, uh, he actually gave it 3.5 out of 4. Yeah. So this obviously resonated with him in some way. He says, here's the animated space adventure I've been hoping for, a film that uses the freedom of animation to visualize the strangeness of the universe in ways live action cannot duplicate, and then joins its vision with a rousing story. Mm. Mm. Uh, Dumbly's <laughs> Titan AE creates the kinds of feelings I had as a teenager. Not sure what those feelings are, Roger. Um, <laughs> Unrestrained horniness. <laughs> yeah, I just have a boner every, every hour of the day. Because Akima's so fucking hot. <laughs> there, are, there are moments when it even stirs a little awe. Probably awe-inspiring music. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is pure slam-bam space opera. Its stills could be transferred intact to a covers of old issues of amazing stories. Yet it has the largeness of spirit that good sci-fi can generate. It isn't just action and warfare. specifically talking about the ass shots. Though. Yeah. <laughs> amazing <laughs> stories, ass shot. Yeah. It isn't just action and warfare, but also a play of ideas. He's really enamored by this film. Yeah. And in it, in this review, because I actually read this review before we began recording this podcast. Mm. And um, later on, he goes to slam Starship Troopers. Um, he uses uh, Titan A as an example of a sci-fi film that works well in a animated setting and Starship Troopers is a film that doesn't work well in a live action zone. Wow. So I, I on this review no. I couldn't I couldn't be in more disagreement. Oh with yes Roger I, I mean I mean this. I've actually I've got a good perspective on that because I only watched Starship Troopers about two weeks ago and I couldn't be more opposite of his opinion because Starship Troopers thematically is so much more interesting yeah. than this. I mean I think with Starship Troopers it's very easy to misjudge what it's actually doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this film, it's kind of obvious yeah. with what's wrong with it. Whereas with Starship Troopers, to some people, it might just be just a cheesy sci-fi action flick and they, they can't really get past the, you know, into the layers of what, what it yeah. actually is really about. But with this, it's, it's very sort of I, on the surface. I feel like with a lot of Paul Verhoeven's later films, including Showgirls, which is a film that I've not really seen, but I've read a lot about. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be getting critically reappraised oh, recently yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. But it feels like in his later films, the satire has been missed, which is baffling to me because Paul Verhoeven is a director who is whose films are heavily satirical. Yeah. And yeah. Starship Troopers is one that offers a lot of satire about the fetishism of the military in American culture. And people thought that that was the point of the film, to fetishize American 
military culture. But that's what it was taking the piss out of. Yeah. I feel like at the time that was lost on people completely. Yeah. That's the thing with Rodrigo sometimes. Sometimes I just like I just don't understand him. It's like, what, why are you praising this film that's really not that good? Yeah. And other times he really lambasts films that have so much going on. Yeah. he's it's bizarre. He, I always find as well that if a film has um, violence in any way, really, he normally comes down quite hard on them. He's not somebody that particularly enjoyed seeing violence on screen. Mm. So it's, I'm not surprised that he didn't like Starship Troopers. Yeah. And just capping that off, IMDb gave this 6.6 .6 out of 10. Okay. Yeah. So very middling reception. So uh, like, how did that go into uh, numbers? Well, as we've established first, um, the budget was $75 million. And let's say that's specifically for this film, but um, you could probably add another $30 million worth of pre-production budget for this other iteration that they had. I'm pretty it. sure on Wikipedia it says 75 to 90. Oh, does may, it? may or may not um, include may, the, uh, the original pre-production budget. Well, in terms of money made, bearing that in mind, the domestic gross was $22 million. Um, and the foreign gross was $14 million, and so that makes a combined worldwide total of $36 million, or just shy of $37 million. Its opening weekend was $9 million, so it barely doubled that opening weekend. And let's talk about that opening weekend. Titan AE debuted at number five in the charts. So to start off from number one, we have the uh, Samuel L. Jackson starring Shaft remake. Which, uh, I thought that was a film that bombed. It's actually done really well. It did $21 million in its first week on a $46 million budget. Number two was Gone in 60 Seconds, a uh, Nicolas Cage remake. Uh, number three was <laughs> another film that I actually uh, had the opportunity to go to the cinema to see. Big Mama's House. <laughs> um, well, the I, first one. Yeah, the first one. Of I many. Went, yeah, I went to the cinema to see that. Number four was Mission Impossible 2. Um, another film I actually had on VHS from the market stall. And number five, as we established, was Titan AE. It made nine million. Number six was Boys and Girls. I don't really know that one. Number seven was a film that surely at some point we will cover on this podcast. is um, Dinosaur from Disney or Buena Vista. Number eight was Gladiator, which was in its seventh weekend and was still making quite a lot of cash. Number nine was Shanghai Noon and... <laughs> Is that the um, Jackie Chan, Owen yeah, Wilson, Wilson film? Yeah. yeah. And number 10 was uh, Road Trip, the unforgettable American Pie ripoff, Road Trip. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's not... I mean, there are a couple of big films in there. No, there aren't really. <laughs> there aren't really. Even the big films come later, like Gladiator, Mission Impossible 2. Mm. Titan A really should have done much better in this weekend. But one of the things that Don Bluth does mention in that lecture that we watched was that... Fox pulled out all the marketing for this film. Well, I think they pulled out way before it was even released, like just yeah. in terms of just the post production and everything. They simply had no faith in it. As no. Well. No. They were already in the process of shutting down Fox Animation Studios. Yeah. Because I do think that is something that we have to tackle with this film, that even for all its faults, like I quite like it, you have more issues with it. Even for all its faults, it isn't the film that closed down Fox Animation Studios. No. Like its reputation well, would lead you to believe. is isn't the film that closed those doors. It was simply the last film made while the doors were closing. Yeah. The doors for the studio actually closed for good only 10 days after the premiere of the film. Yeah, so it, it so, just yeah, goes it to show that yeah. it was a foregone conclusion 
that Fox Animation Studios were going to close down. This yeah. was just the the last thing they managed to push out through the door. Yeah. I mean, just to put it in perspective, based on their previous release, which is Anastasia, that film was made for $50 million. Yeah. And it made almost $140 million in box office. So that's like almost three times its budget. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a massive hit, but it was definitely a decent, modest hit. So that's the drop off there. So I guess we come to that time of the podcast now where I only have the uh, two questions I ask at the end of every episode left to ask. And first up we have, um, are you any closer to understanding why Titan AE has been forgotten? Uh, Yeah, because I just don't feel like the filmmakers were passionate enough about it to really bring it home. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, Fox lost face, not just in the film, but in the whole animation studio before even been released. So it never really had a chance to break into a mass audience anyway because the advertising wasn't there. And, uh, yeah, I just don't think any of it particularly comes together. To, there's not one element in the film that comes through. I mean, there's a, ni- a couple of nice sequences that I like, but there's nothing that really comes through to make me want to watch it again. The, the only reason I do watch it again is because I'm an animation fan. Yeah. So this is a film that really is just for animation fans, and I wouldn't really say it for sci-fi fans, really. It's... Just to feel like animation, and this is an interesting experiment, I suppose. Yeah, an oddity. Yeah. I also think that one of the reasons it's been forgotten is that it was made in a real transitional period for animation in any way. And um, because it is experimenting with different styles, it doesn't really do justice to either style. And um, it ends up occupying this kind of no man's land between traditional animation and CGI animated films. And like I say, it doesn't do a surface to either of them. So in, in that way, I completely understand why it has been forgotten because it, um, it's not good enough in either respect to appeal to fans of those particular genres and those particular styles of filmmaking. And its story as well, it doesn't offer enough new, a, a new slant on the sci-fi genre. Yeah. As they said in the Empire Review, it does feel like a copy and paste job. But as I move into the second question, which is, um, is this film best of the forgotten or should it simply remain best forgotten? I do want to say that, again, just to reiterate that me personally, I have a much more positive experience with this film. And I do admit straight off that some of it is based on nostalgia. Like even when we watched back the lit video before, I don't like that song. I don't like, but I was like, I, I said to you straight off, Jesus is making me nostalgic. I'm suddenly in... <laughs> baggy pants again hanging around <laughs> at the town centre and having chains hanging down. I yep. look like a right musher in my mind. And it's like, oh, it makes me nostalgic for that time, even though I don't really like any of this stuff anymore. Um, and there is a deal, a great deal of that with Titan A for me. It does make me feel nostalgic. It does remind me of a time in my life. But I do think it is also enjoyable. I, I think that the world, although not it doesn't fulfill of any of its promises or potential to its fullest. There's enough there for it to be enjoyable and interesting. And even in terms of being an oddity, it offers a lot to discuss and a lot to think over. So I do think, in my opinion, it is, it's teetering on the coin and I do come down positively just about on mm-hmm. one side of it because it is fun. Yeah, uh, but it's it's one of those films that I will say it for me it is uh, one of the best of the forgotten, but with a real heavy kind of like footnote there mm. that it is an incredibly flawed film on every level, even if you can enjoy it in a visceral way. Mm. 
Um, how do you feel? I imagine you're on the other side of yeah, that. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to fall on the other side of the coin yeah. now because I feel I do say I'm a, I am an animation fan and I do love quite a lot of the things that Don Bluth has made over the time, even some of the weirder stuff. But I just feel judging it on its own merits, I just don't feel like it really it doesn't excite me at all. Yeah. I mean, even going in to watch the film again, it was kind of a bit of an effort. It's not even anything I even wanted to show Jess because I think that it's just a weird film. Yeah, There's nothing in it that I particularly love that I, much. I mean, I do agree with you. There's nothing in the film that I love, mm. but there's enough, just about enough that I like. Yeah, and I just think there's better animated films that try this thing out, um, yeah. this whole sci-fi, that are a little bit better. Not just as a story, but also technically. Uh, so I just feel like it's definitely the the run to the litter in that respect. I mean, out of those, perhaps that's something that's uh, I, I'm being blinded by because one of the things I always keep going back to is I really um, appreciate their ambitions. I really yeah. kind of applaud them for their ambitions of doing something different in a transitional period for animation. But regardless of what their ambitions may be, it doesn't pay off. No, but um, I still do. Like I say, I still do enjoy this film. Yeah. On some and level. again, I don't have that same nostalgia that you have around yeah. like the lit and stuff because I never liked that kind of well, stuff anyway. The lit itself isn't really <laughs> is it isn't nostalgia, but this film specifically reminds yeah, me yeah. of a time as well. Whereas I think even when I first watched this film, I knew there was something not right about it. Yeah, like I just knew that it was slightly off. I just feel it just comes short of crossing that uh, that line for me. Yeah. So I do think it's for me. It's definitely best forgotten so i guess we're going to leave it up to our fans to decide whether or not this is a best of the forgotten movie or best forgotten i think I, i'm happy to leave it that way i, yeah. I, I think i it's... think we're still quite close but i'm just one one side of the line yeah, exactly the yeah yeah okay so that was our titan ae episode and i hope it was everything that you wanted it to be it's really a good blast from the past there and um what have we got coming up for the next episode well I will say that the next episode is one that I have chosen as we come back to Popcorn Digest. So I blame you. <laughs> yeah, so so I will say all the hate mail that you can send, it's directed directed straight to Andy. He's going to pass it on, <laughs> pass it on to me. All right, so he's, he's dealing with all my mail at the moment during the coronavirus. So all the hate mail, send it to him. Uh, but actually, we're going to be reviewing Cats. Can't wait. I take it from your stunned silence. You're just absolutely astounded by this fact. Yeah. He's beside himself with joy. I know that you can't see him, but I can at this time, and he's just weeping with joy. Weeping with something, anyway. I won't say where he's weeping from, but he's weeping. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. But yeah, so if you join us on next week's episode, we'll be reviewing Cats Meow. Until then, it's bye from me, Gareth. And bye from... Is it me? Is it you? No? Um, I don't know. I'm confused. Oh, this is a jump back to when you were Andrew Phillips as well. I know, <gasps> I know. Shocker. But, um, yeah, I'm not a different person if anyone's asking this. <laughs> I'm the same person. <laughs> I imagine it will come up at some point. But yeah, so it's been bye from myself and bye from Andy. Thank you for listening. Yeah.